Welcome back to the Series 7 Study Guide, the Series 7 Podcast. The Series 7 Study Guide is a full series of audio lessons consisting of 74 lessons which cover over 32 hours of audio instruction. And that full audio course is available at series7podcast.com. In this podcast, we are going to be covering portions of the lessons contained in the Series 7 Top-Off Study Guide, audio lessons for the new Series 7 exam. We hope you find these lessons valuable. And if you do, go to series7podcast.com and purchase the full bundle of audio lessons. These audio lessons are not intended to be a substitute for your book learning or attending classes. Audio lessons are a supplement. Some people learn audibly. Some people learn by reading. Some people learn by attending classes. We recommend that you use all forms of learning available to you. And audio is just one of those. Let me read you some of the reviews we've had for the Series 7 Top-Off Study Guide. Haley wrote, Thank you for your glorious podcast. Hi, Franz. I'm studying for the Series 7 while working a full-time, 12-hour-a-day job, have a toddler at home, and another kiddo on the way. As a supplemental tool, as I drive between my meetings in Los Angeles, it's brilliant. I especially love the editorial commentary as it puts everything into perspective. I haven't tried the videos or done any of the quizzes yet, but I'm a big fan so far and just getting started. My test is January 27th. Wish me luck. Any tips or additional feedback you have would be much appreciated. Your biggest fan, Haley. And then Tim wrote, Thank you so much for the podcast. I started out with the free ones and then ordered the package. This week I passed. I studied and read for a few months in between work and listened to your podcast in my commute to work and any time in the car. Two days leading up to the test, I basically stopped working to study full-time. And the day before, got to a hotel room near the testing center and did practice tests all day and night. You state multiple times that your podcasts are not going to get you to pass alone, but I am certain that they blessed me with that extra bit of understanding and reinforcement that helped me pass. And one more, and this will be the last one I read. There's just too many of them. This is from Kevin. Kevin wrote, Hi, Franz. I wanted to say thank you for putting out your podcast. I purchased the Series 7 about a year ago and the 63 four or five months ago. I felt very comfortable going into the Series 7, which your podcast laid a very good foundation for me. The podcast alone would not allow me to pass the exam, as you clearly point out several times in your podcast. But they got me about 70% there and gave me the foundation I needed to pass my exams the first time. As for the Series 63, there's no doubt in my mind that I would have failed without your podcast. I listened to the podcast on my way down to the exams about three hours, and thank goodness I did. I could hear your voice in my head as the questions popped up, which helped me pass the 63 on the first time as well. I am grateful that you took the time to put the podcast out at a very reasonable rate. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Sincerely, Kevin. All right, let's get on to today's lesson. Welcome to the Series 7 Top-Off Exam Audio Lessons. This is lesson number 18. In this lesson, we're going to be covering common stocks. 
Now, this is a repeat of one of my original Series 7 lessons. And often I get emails from people saying, hey, um, don't you need to update that? Well, no, (laughs) actually I don't. This section on common stocks has been the same as long as I have been in business, and it will probably continue to be the same long after you are retired. The fundamentals don't change. Rules and regulations change, but the fundamentals don't change. So let's get on to the lesson on common stocks. Now, first of all, if you look at a company's balance sheet, there's going to be an asset, a liability, and an equity section. And the common stock side of the equation is in the equity section. Common stock is the equity of a company. If you're a common stockholder, you own a portion of the company. Common stock is issued by the corporation, and it's also issued by investment companies. When a company goes and does the charter for itself, it will register with the state, and in the state registration, in the Articles of Incorporation, it will state that the company is authorized to issue X number of shares. And then it'll usually state what the par value of those shares are. And it can be at par or a no par stock. Typically, a company will have either no par stock, which means there is no intrinsic value to the stock, or a very low par value. And par value is simply the stated value of the company's stock on the company's balance sheet. For instance, let's say a company issues stock at $10 a share, yet the par value on the stock is $1. On the balance sheet, you will see issued stock at par at $1 and paid in excess of par value of $9. This is very common. The par value is set low primarily because of the different state regulations involving the taxation of corporations. Some states charge a tax based on the par value of the stock, and it really just depends on the state the company is operated in, what they can and cannot do. What What state the company is chartered in depends what they can and can't do. So when you have a question, say, why would a, if you have a multiple choice question, which asks, what would be one reason why you have a low par value on a stock? The answer to that would be because the taxation of the various states might tax the par value at a certain rate. And by lowering the par value, it reduces the tax to the corporation. Now, in the Articles of Incorporation, you will see authorized shares. When you look at a balance sheet, you will see issued shares. The issued shares is the number of share, uh, the number of authorized shares that have been sold. So a company may authorize a thousand shares, but only issue 100 shares. And that means that other 900 shares are sitting there and they could be issued later to raise additional capital. So you'll have issued shares and authorized shares. Additionally, you will also have sometimes treasury shares. And treasury shares have been shares that have been authorized and issued and then bought back by the company. And they can use these shares for pension plan funding or stock option plan obligations 
or they may choose to retire these shares at some point in time. When a company calculates its earnings per share, treasury stock shares are not taken into consideration when calculating earnings per share. Also, treasury stock does not have voting rights, and it does not receive dividends. Let's talk about the record-keeping of stockholders. The corporation must keep records, very detailed records, of the number of shares outstanding and who owns those shares. Also, it must include the names and addresses of the owners of those shares, and that must be made available at the annual meeting for inspection. The reason the company has to have these registration documents is it's so that it knows where to send mail, such as the 10K, and we'll get into that later on, and the 10Qs, and the annual reports, and also the dividends that it may distribute. It has to have a detailed record. The person that keeps the records for the corporation is called the registrar, and that's spelled R-E-G-I-S-T-R-A-R. Now, let's say you sell your stock to another person. When you sell that stock, the person that handles the transfer of your stock from your name to the other person's name is called the transfer agent. So the registrar watches the transfer agent to make sure he makes the transfer in the correct way. The transfer agent will cancel the old shares, which were in your name, and issue new shares in the name of the new purchaser. This is updated daily, and the new information of the address and the person of record is passed back to the registrar. The list of owners of the stock is called the record book of stockholders. Transfer agents can make mistakes from time to time. Now, over the last half century, they've gone from being actual physical securities to book entry certificates. And in this case, instead of physically issuing shares and then canceling them when they're bought and sold and reissuing new shares, the book entry certificate simply makes an entry in the books of the transfer agent and by the clearing corporation that conducted the trade and that settles the trade. When you're asked, the registrar is always acting as the watchdog over the transfer agent. Okay, let's talk about the rights of the shareholder. The first and foremost right you need to understand as being a common stock shareholder is that your liability is limited to the value of your stock. In other words, you can't lose more money than you invested. You can lose all of that money, but your liability is limited to your investment. The second thing you need to understand is that common stockholders have the right to vote at the company's annual meeting. And they vote for the board of directors, who in turn will appoint the officers of the corporation. Two other things you will always see on the proxy statement. The first one is the reappointment of the auditor. You have a right to vote on the auditor that audits the books of the corporation. Now, I've never heard of an auditor being voted out of a corporation through the proxy process. And one other thing, to have a say on pay of the executive management of the company. And this is something that's caused a little bit of consternation in, in corporations because there has been a very big tendency to increase pay packages for executives. 
and it's come to light now. And now we're starting to see stockholders push back against what are considered fairly exorbitant pay packages. And in fact, in the last few years, there's been actual votes against the pay packages. Now, these are non-binding votes, but management must pay attention to what the wishes of the stockholders are. In my firm, just a little side note, I am responsible for voting the proxies of the holdings that our company has. We're a registered investment management firm, and I vote the proxies. And I will typically spend some time going through these and compare the growth in the revenues and the earnings of the corporation against the growth in the executive salaries. And quite often, there's a big disconnect. You'll see that the company's growth has been marginal or flat or non-existent, yet I continue to see executive pay packages increase. And when I see this, I typically vote against the pay package, and quite often I may choose to vote against the entire board of directors for letting this behavior continue. Just a side note on that. Quite often on proxy statements, and this is the uh, ballot basically that you will use to vote your, your choices, there will be other issues that may relate to the corporate business, such as the authorization to authorize more shares or the changing of certain stockholder rights, such as preemptive rights, and we'll get into those a little later. But the amount of shares that you have is determined usually by the number of shares you own. If a company's issued 100 shares and you own 50 shares, you have 50% of the voting rights. Now, there's some other concepts we'll get into later on, which talked about preemptive rights and other rights of stockholders that affect sometimes how you vote. Stockholder will often vote on whether to issue additional convertible bonds or preferred stocks. These will be all things that are voted on in stockholder meetings and also special meetings that are called by the board of directors. Some items that require a stockholder vote under the New York Stock Exchange rules include the declaration of a stock split, the issue of stock options to officers on a preferential basis, in other words, at a price lower than you and I get to buy in the open market, the issuance of convertible bonds, and also the declaration of a reverse stock split. A stock split is when you would multiply the number of shares by a certain factor. A typical stock split would be a two-to-one stock split, where once you had one share, after a stock split of a two-to-one stock split, you would have two shares. A reverse stock split is exactly the opposite. A 50% reverse stock split would say if you once had two shares, when they were done with the reverse stock split of 50%, you would now have one share. Some items don't require a stockholder vote, according to the New York Stock Exchange rules. And these include the declaration of a dividend, the declaration of a stock dividend. And a stock dividend is instead of issuing you additional cash as a dividend, they issue you additional shares as a dividend. And this is different than a stock split, primarily because the number of shares they're issuing doesn't amount to what is considered a split. And also, it's not required that you have a stockholder vote to repurchase shares. These are decisions that are made by the board of directors. 
This podcast on the Series 7 Top-Off Study Guide, audio lessons for the new Series 7 exam, is brought to you by insuranceexampodcast.com. In addition to passing the Series 7 exam and the SIE exam, most likely you are going to be required to pass additional examinations in order to present your client with the investment choices most suitable for him. These additional examinations will include the Series 63 exam, and the Life Health Insurance exam. The insurance examination is an examination administered by the state in which you plan on selling insurance products. Insurance products can include variable annuities, fixed annuities, whole life insurance, and other insurance products. While each state has a slightly different insurance exam, there is uniformity to these exams And the Life Health Insurance Exam can be studied in your spare time by listening to audio lessons. At insuranceexampodcast.com, they have a series of audio lessons, which is 12 hours in length, and consists of 26 audio lessons and 5 review lessons. Go to insuranceexampodcast.com and sign up to get 5 free lessons to start preparing for your insurance exam. Now, the logic that the New York Stock Exchange uses in the requirement that a stockholder vote be used to, oh, let's say, declare a reverse stock split or issue convertible bonds or preferred stock or issue stock options or declare a stock split is because they think that these actions could be and quite often are dilutive to the stockholder's interests. For instance, if the company issues convertible bonds or, let's say, preferred stock, it may be dilutive to your interests as a stockholder in, in the company. And the logic is that you should have a right in deciding whether that is done or not. Under the New York Stock Exchange rules, dividend decisions are made solely by the board of directors. And a stock dividend as long as it is less than 25% of the outstanding shares can be made by a decision of the board of directors. And the logic there is that if you have one share of stock and you get 25% more, that it's not dilutive to you. You own the same proportion of the company after a stock dividend as before. And they don't require a vote by the stockholders for the purchase of treasury stock because if the company buys its treasury stock, your proportional interest goes up. And there's mathematical problems we'll work through later on that talk about this. Stockholders have the right to vote at the annual meeting. There's two types of voting rights. The most common right is called a statutory voting. And the other type is called cumulative voting. Statutory voting is simply one vote for each director. So, for example, if you want 100 shares of stock and there are 10 directors that are to be voted on, you would have a total of 1,000 votes. One vote for each director times 100 shares. So 1,000 votes. Cumulative voting is quite different. In statutory voting, you only have the right to vote yes or no for each director. In cumulative voting, you can take that 1,000 shares and vote it for one 
director. Or you might take 500 shares and vote for two different directors. Nonetheless, you cumulatively gather your votes and cast. All right, that's the end of the lesson for today. Again, the full lesson and the full series of audio lessons is available at the website series7podcast.com. This podcast on the Series 7 Top-Off Study Guide, Audio Lessons for the New Series 7 Exam, is brought to you by insuranceexampodcast.com. In addition to passing the Series 7 Exam and the SIE Exam, most likely you are going to be required to pass additional examinations in order to present your client with the investment choices most suitable for him. These additional examinations will include the Series 63 exam, and the Life Health Insurance exam. The insurance examination is an examination administered by the state in which you plan on selling insurance products. Insurance products can include variable annuities, fixed annuities, whole life insurance, and other insurance products. While each state has a slightly different insurance exam, there is uniformity to these exams And the Life Health Insurance Exam can be studied in your spare time by listening to audio lessons. At insuranceexampodcast.com, they have a series of audio lessons, which is 12 hours in length, and consists of 26 audio lessons and 5 review lessons. Go to insuranceexampodcast.com and sign up to get 5 free lessons to start preparing for your insurance exam. Best of luck in your studies. And remember, this podcast is sponsored by...